Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We have referred to angel investing many times on the podcast, so we thought it was about time that we had one on. Kirsten Connell is an experienced angel with a background in venture capital. We talk about how she started investing, how she approaches it, and how she thinks about sourcing diligence and diversification. This is the first anniversary of the EIS Navigator, so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of our guests, listeners, and our team, not least our excellent editor, Jonathan. It's been fun so far, and I'm really looking forward to the next year. So without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Kirsten Connell, who is an angel and a venture partner at Octopus. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So can you perhaps tell us how you became an angel investor? Yes. Um, gosh, I suppose I became an angel investor quite opportunistically, really. And so early on in my career, I fell into the world of venture capital. I was very fortunate to do so because it's a wonderful um, sector to be working in. So I started off working for a VC called Insynergy. They ran a £50 million sustainable technology fund. Um, and my role there was really connecting high net worth individuals with startups looking for funding. Thoroughly enjoyed that experience, but but it didn't actually even cross my mind to start angel investing. And I, I certainly didn't have you know, the bank account to do so. I continued my career in, in, in tech and sort of startups. Went to CCAP, who one of Europe's most active, successful early stage investment firms. Spent five years with them, met the most wonderful startups um, during my sort of almost five year tenure with them. They invested in 170 companies. So I suppose I was in a really unique position to sort of see all these brilliant tech companies from across Europe growing and scaling, meeting the founders, seeing the disruptive tech that they were building building. But again, you know, I just wasn't financially in a position where I could start angel investing, but it gave me a brilliant, you know, insight as to, to what do great companies look like at the very earliest stages. And so it wasn't, so after five years of doing that, it was, I then landed at a deep tech cybersecurity accelerator. I was the MD there and did that again for five years. And that was my first opportunity where I felt like I had the confidence and the resources to start angel investing. So it took me sort of, you know, almost seven years of being um, in and around amazing technology companies before I wrote my first angel tech. So I suppose I came to it, you could say, quite slowly. Um, I take my time. I, I knew what good looked like. And, and that's so, yeah, during my um, my time at Cylon, which was the cybersecurity accelerator, that's where I made my first angel investment. And then quite quickly, I would say, caught the bug and, and made the number of angel investments. <laughs> Excellent. I suspect slowly is not a bad way to start with this because the impression I get is there's a lot to learn. So those people who jump in, learning by doing is good, but at the same time, you probably want to build up slowly. Well, of course, and and it's so risky. And so... You could get extremely lucky and, and, you know, meet a founder who's happened to be raising money and, you know, they're hustling you, they grab you and they sort of convince you of their story and their vision and they um, convince you to, to back them. And you could get lucky. And it also depends on the motivation for angels as to why they're doing this, I think. For lots of angels, it's it's a hobby, and if they manage to make money, you know, fantastic. And that's probably the right mindset to have. And so, you know, you could, as you say, just do by learning. 
but it's still, that said, it's still very risky. And so actually being able to compare a number of different decks, financial projections, sort of knowing the challenges that these companies are going to face is just, I think it's good to have that healthy lens when you're reviewing these companies to just sort of make that own judgment call, you know, how at risk is it's your money. Um, and, and, and that will help to also decide and help, you know, help the startups because you've sort of seen what has worked, what hasn't worked. So you build up a lot of experience. So um, yeah, there's definitely no wrong approach to starting, but I think, as you say, taking your time definitely isn't a bad thing. Yeah. So maybe we'll rewind to start. I assume most I, I'm assuming most listeners will know what angel investing is, but perhaps you could tell us what you think angel investing actually is. Yes. Um, gosh, so angel investing is when you meet an early stage startup, and typically this would be a tech startup, so a company that's going to be um, highly scalable, capital efficient. A startup could be, you know, a hair salon, but but that's t- typically not what we're talking about. This is more like high growth companies, a bit like Deliveroo or Kazoo or Transferwise or companies like that. And you know, you might be using their products, you might just see them in the press. So so that's typically the type of company that the profile of the company that you come across. Then they tend to be very early stage. So usually, you know, sort of a team of two, maybe a few more. They've got an idea. They might have even built something, built some tech. And in a dream case scenario, they might have a couple of early users, some people who are really passionate about what it is that they're trying to achieve, the problem that they're trying to solve. And so, but what happens more often than not is that these founders almost get stuck. So they might be sacrificing their salary because they've left, you know, they've left the security of a job to, to pursue their dream. And so they're lacking in funding either to, to pay their own wage or to build build out the tech and, and give themselves a long enough runway to, to find those companies and to make the company sustainable. And so a lot of companies at that point in their journey, they have to go out and lose money. And when you're still in the early stages of that journey, it's very hard to convince an institutional investor or a bank to potentially give you a loan um, to fund you. And so what you then rely on is if, if you're so fortunate to have friends and family who can back you, often they do, but not everyone has that network. And, and so that's often where angels step in. So it's people who sort of have the knowledge, um, a bit of capital, and they can really help bridge that round from sort of idea to, to, to MVP so that, so that your company reaches sort of the next milestone where you can continue to raise more money and, and, and grow. So in my mind, that's angel investing and the angel should bring far more to the table than just money. So hopefully you sort of have an angel who might understand the sector, who might have can make customer introductions, might be great with hiring, you know, identifying gaps in the team. It, it, an angel can provide so much support, even just, you know, um, you know, a supportive ear. Cheering, cheering the founders on from the sidelines because it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's challenging to build a startup. So the angel can provide so many different roles, but hopefully they bring more to the table than, than just the money. Yeah, I was going to ask that later, but let's, get, let's go there now. So if you're looking at a company... As, as an angel and you want to support it or their support what what do you think you bring to the table that is uniquely kirsten yeah good question uh what do i bring to the table 
Gosh, I suppose I bring a huge network with me. Um, mm-hmm. So having worked in this sector for over a decade now, you know, I'm, I know most VCs across Europe. Um, I know sort of the stage they like to invest in, the sectors, you know, the partners who having those warm introductions can be extremely valuable. I have also seen endless pitch decks. I was, I was sort of <laughs> looking at this the other day and I think I might have seen over 10,000 different startup pitch decks. Well, so it's a nice. huge volume. Yeah, exactly. Well, come back and to that. So I, yeah. So I like to think that I've got some, you know, a half decent idea in terms of what a good deck looks like. And that's challenging. It's so challenging to put to put the decks together. And then the third element, I suppose, is I have a good understanding of where you can be helpful and where you can't be helpful. So I also I'm not afraid to just step aside and say, you know, I'm of no help here, but I'll be efficient. I will not get into your way. If you need document signing, you don't need to chase me five times. You know, send me one email and, you know, hopefully, you know, go standard is is replied within 24 hours. Um, And so hopefully I bring a bit of, you know, efficiency to the table, even if I'm not being helpful in any other way. Okay. And do you go go on boards at all or are you more just an investor in the background? No, I'm just an investor in the background. Mm-hmm. So I normally, you know, it depends on what is best practice for, for startups, but, you know, sometimes they send monthly updates. I actually think that's probably a bit too time consuming for, for the teams to be doing so. And so quarterly shareholders updates is perfect, especially if they have a sort of an ask. I think it's always great for founders to do that from all of their shareholders. You know, what are the introductions they're looking for? What are the industries they're trying to break into? And then that's a really great opportunity for the angels to step in and, and help without taking up any board seats or roles. And you mentioned about you've seen a lot of pitch decks, an awful lot of pitch decks. How well do you see people producing these? What sort of mistakes do you see people making? What do you like to see on a pitch deck? Yeah, great questions. Um, Yeah, and these days I would say everyone's pitch set just looks so professional and beautiful um, and very well designed so sometimes that makes it even harder to sort of really dig down into to what matters throughout those slides and so I think you would hear this from probably so many people you speak to especially at the very early stages it always comes down to the team especially for me um, as you, you hear a lot now about sort of founder market fit founder product fit um, but ultimately it's, it's who are the founders have they experience the pain firsthand in terms of the, the, the problem they're trying to solve what experience have they got under their belt you know are they fresh out of university or have they had a corporate job and they're perhaps a little bit more professional and there's no right or wrong but it's also just very good to, to understand that when you're sort of evaluating a team how did the founders come together have they worked together before you know have they faced disputes and, and have they handled that so it's a really interesting question you can also ask about the motivation of the team you know why are they really doing this Mm-hmm. And and what sort of motivations do you do you like or dislike? Because I, I've heard stories before about the nar- narrative about oh, th- there's some really good reason I did this in the past, that, and I had this problem, and that's really good. And you get people who sort of oh, I just want to make a lot of money, and that's oh, maybe yeah. not so good. <laughs> yeah, and I've I've seen both, and I think it's a more authentic story when you've experienced the problem firsthand. And then I think also the way you design a product 
it's different. And then you really have to hone in on who are your early adopters. And I think that really helps focus, you know, the sort of agile development, minimal viable product. Whereas if you're coming at it just from a angle of, I want to make a huge amount of money, which, you know, of course that's not a bad thing, but, but it is harder to have that laser sharp focus in the early days as to who are your first customers going to be. And more importantly, like why? Because if you haven't suffered the same pain that they've suffered, how are you going to sell that product to them? Um, and so you could be, you know, an incredible salesperson and you might make that work. But, but I always think that journey is just going to be slightly harder. And so... I definitely tend to, to lean more towards teams where, you know, either I can identify with the problem that they're trying to solve or, or if I've had others, you know, a common sort of problem that there uh-huh. is in the market. Um, yeah, and so that's probably more the solutions and the teams that I'm drawn to. One, one of the things that always intrigues me about angel investors is how you source deals because I'm well aware of what goes on in the EIS world and everyone in the EIS world talks about... The network's really good. We get a lot of random approaches and there's maybe one duel in, in every hundred or every thousand there, but really, you know, that, that's not the best way of getting things. Now, you may be a little bit different because of your background, that you're maybe better connected than a lot of angels to start with. But how do you find deals? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Like the higher quality of deal flow you're, you have access to, you know, almost better. And, and where these exciting opportunities going to come from, and, you know, they can literally come from all corners of, of the globe. And, and I've seen that in my, my sort of professional career. And so it's very hard. It's like, do you cast the net wide? Do you optimize to sort of see everything? And by seeing everything, I mean, like, you know, there's so many accelerators now. You could be attending their demo days, going, you know, their pitch events, adding your emails to newsletters, to all the tech articles that are around their tech crunch shifted. There's other databases where you can have search for companies turning and you can filter on the sector of the stage, like PitchBook and, and others. So there's so many sort of, I suppose, sources that you could go to to find companies. And I think it's a good idea if you have a sector that you're interested in to be very deliberate about how you design that network to find the best companies within the areas that you're interested in. And so you can go about this in a very methodical method. Um, and, And then the other, the way that I suppose I've got about it is just tapping into high quality networks where there's a community and my community are like sharing opportunities with each other. They're happy to share notes. Um, And it's a real give to get sort of attitude. So, you know, everyone's happy to share notes. Oh, I looked at this company. There's no negativity. It's just all very open, very collaborative. And so, yeah, I'm a part of sort of a number of networks, WhatsApp groups, Slack channels like that. And I suppose that's where the highest quality deal flow comes from, as well as personal relationships. So, you know, people just happen to know, like, a lot of my angel investments are within cybersecurity. So when they come across a cybersecurity company, it's very easy for me to sort of be front of mind. And so also, if you make yourself known for something in the industry, that's also a great way to see brilliant companies because then, you know, people automatically think of you when they see a company that sort of might fit into your area of interest. So you mentioned you've got an expertise in cybersecurity, obviously, because you spent five years in Accelerator doing it. Is it a case of as an angel, you want to see lots of cybersecurity things? Or are you thinking, 
I've already got exposure to cybersecurity. I want to diversify that elsewhere. How do you think of the concentration versus diversification sort of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Great point. Um, so I've probably got to the point now where I am looking to diversify my angel portfolio. However, it is definitely a steep learning curve that I'm going on because I just feel so much more equipped to evaluate a startup opportunity if, if they're within the cybersecurity space. You know, I sort of know what are the other solutions out there? What is it similar to? What does the messaging look like from a customer standpoint? Is this a solution that they've seen a hundred of or is this actually quite unique? What are the price points? What's the distribution channel? You know, there's so many questions that go through your mind, which when it's a cybersecurity company, I feel relatively confident that, that I can evaluate and I have a really clear understanding of the market they're trying to get into. Even if I have to say, even if I don't have a deep understanding of the tech itself, which I don't think as an angel investor, you necessarily need to have. I think it's far more important to be able to evaluate the team and understand that root market piece. For me, that's absolutely crucial. And does the team understand the challenges that they're going to face in getting their product to market? Does it ever worry you that there may be people showing up with technology and maybe they're not the technology is quite not quite as well developed as they may be claiming or they don't understand it as well as they say? Yeah, well that's another good point. I worry about that a lot less. More often than not, in a in a founding team, you'll find one individual who's very technical. And I suppose the reason I don't worry about it is because all my angel investments have that extremely technical know-how capability as part of the founding team. And and that could be, you know, you could judge that in terms of their previous job roles of the corporates, but what they were doing. And you can quite you can quite quickly do some due diligence on that. So I don't worry too much about you know, will the tech work? And also, if the tech doesn't work, I think, you know, you can outsource that. There's so many great developers now. So I think you can you can hire tech talents. For me, it's far more crucial. Uh, are they commercial? That's harder. It's very hard to outsource sales from day one. And also... You know, if you're really good at sales, you can even sell a product that you haven't yet built. And then you can really test with the customer, you know, what is it that they exactly want to, and, and you build that. And so, you know, so for me, sort of being the more natural, or not even natural, you know, you can learn this as well. And there's a brilliant book on that called The Mum Test, which was exactly that, like more technical founder who who went about learning how to sell. So I think you can learn that. But, but being a founder who's got that um, natural ability, that, that, they can dedicate themselves and learn what it is that they haven't got or or have that um, healthy level of sort of self-awareness that, that they appreciate their own sort of shortcomings because no one can take every single board. And, and even if they have that self-awareness, that's a great characteristic to have because then you know what talent to bring in and where. And so, yeah, so I don't, I don't tend to worry too much about the tech. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness is something that sounds very desirable, but strikes me it can be hard to judge because if you're meeting someone for the first time you maybe and investing, you maybe get three hours of meetings or something with them or whatever before you actually invest. Do you feel it's something that's very easy to judge or something that's trickier? I suppose you judge that more subconsciously. And, and perhaps that's a really good point for me to try and come up with a framework of questions to really, really pull that out. I think it's it's sort of a, a gut feeling you get in terms of the self-awareness. I suppose you might ask questions which have highlighted, you know, so 
yeah, one of the key questions I would always actually ask is sort of, you know, where, where are the gaps in the team? And I suppose the answer to that question probably demonstrates an element of self-awareness. And it's impossible if you're sort of a team of two or three people to say, well, there aren't any, you know. I've seen people try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's probably you know um, a warning sign. So yeah, it's probably it's probably the way founders sort of tackle and answer and the, and the considerations that they put behind answering questions like that, which then probably gives you a sense of their self awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a balance. You need that level of optimistic. You know, you need to be super optimistic as a founder. You know, like we're going to achieve this because if you don't have that, you never achieve anything. Yes, <laughs> so yes. It is. It's definitely that balance. Yeah, I, I I have this phrase where I talk about realistic optimism rather than fantasist optimism. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you, you need the re- perhaps something more realistic than fant- fantasy for a startup, although maybe not. Maybe the best start, you know, if you want that ultra unicorn, do you want someone who's got fantasy? I mean, Elon Musk sounds like a bit of a fantasist, but <laughs> he's made yeah. things happen. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I read the Sunday Rich list at the weekend, and yeah, there's some people who sound like that as well on, on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time you've made the Rich list, you can afford to be a bit of a fantasist, I think. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, when it comes to companies and doing diligence, what sort of things is using an angel sees as appropriate for a diligence? Because it would be very easy to sort of go horrendously deep, I think, as an angel. And I know my inclination naturally myself is like, get every single little bit of information you can, but maybe that's not appropriate as an angel. Yeah, so the way I would go about it, it depends a little bit on what stage the company is at. You know, do they actually have data that you can look at? As in, you know, let's say it's an app, how many times has it been downloaded? What's the stickiness like? What's their customer acquisition funnel look like? You know, there's a lot of things that you could look at if, if they're at that point that they can sort of share some of the early traction signs and signals with you. If they don't have that, then you're probably more testing, you know, how do they truly know who their early adopters are? Do they really understand the pain points? Do they really understand what they're willing to either spend uh, to solve that solution or the, the time they're willing to put in or, or whatever it is, you know, what's going to be that hook? Um, and so I spent a lot of time sort of focusing on on the hook or if they've got it, as I mentioned, data. And then you really just want to test their assumptions. So, you know, you sort of probe a little bit and then see if it all stacks up. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the due diligence process, for me at least, is sort of just understanding how do the founders think? Can I align my vision with theirs? So even if the numbers aren't accurate, you know, even if the growth isn't going to be 500% year on year, you know, even if it's half of that, you know, is this still a really exciting opportunity? And, and so I try to look at, you know, what could go right? Um, and from their assumptions, what would I put enough faith behind this going right? And, and then does that still look like a great opportunity? And if the answer is yes, and you really like the team, then that's probably the extent of, of my due diligence, really. And, and if I know other co-investors, it's always brilliant to sort of share notes and, and you know, potentially ask a subject matter expertise if it's not necessarily an area I'm too okay with. Yeah, so if there's other people around, presumably you can get that support but to what extent do you feel you can rely on other people and as the people you say oh yes I know him very well and I can rely on what he's and 
maybe somewhere in your network there'll be someone who you think oh yeah he's a bit of an idiot I'm not relying on what he says or... <laughs> yeah well it all comes down to trust doesn't it and I think I think that's why you often find a lot of angels co-invest together multiple times because mm-hmm. I suppose they just build up that level of trust and if one founder's done the due diligence the other founder will say yeah great if you're doing it I'll meet the team I like it perfect I'm also in and vice versa so I think you get that quite a lot and I've heard other angels say it like god you know I'm always co-investing in the same group of angels <laughs> and I suppose because you then you share deals amongst one another and and you're sort of within your comfort zone so I think Trust is a very important factor. But I've also experienced with some of the networks I said I'm, I'm part of, and especially some really great sort of female angel networks trying to encourage more um, women to A, start investing in B, to also start investing in more sort of female-led founders. And within that group, let's say there's almost 200 of us. And so there might be 10 of us that jump on a, a call to, to listen to a founder pitch, and then we'll all share notes. And within that community of sort of 200, there are always people who are putting their hands up to say, hey, I know so-and-so, or I've referenced it with X, Y, Z. And so just to give you a real example, quite recently we hopped on a call to listen to a founder was in a sort of fashion tech sector um, and was building a, a garment that was meant to be 100% uh, biodegradable. And I'm not an expertise in, in that area, but within the group, there were sort of four or five who were. Um, and, you know, then I, I go on their LinkedIn, I can see they've got, you know, a really long history um, of working in the sustainability field. And so then, you know, the feedback that they give is, is super important and, and I would very heavily rely on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you, you obviously mentioned about a group of women. The venture capital industry has had its issues with women and, and minorities in terms of getting proper representation. Do you feel that is getting better? Yes, I feel like there's a lot of positive momentum around it. There's definitely a lot of awareness, which I suppose is perhaps, you know, a really important first step. And even sifted quite recently wrote an article or I think 200 female partners at uh, VC firms across Europe. And that's actually wonderful to see. It's wonderful wonderful to see that there are so many women now in the decision-making role within a VC. And I think slowly that change will then start to filter down. So, you know, if you are pitching to a woman, the likelihood that if you're a female pitching to a female, that you're, you're just as likely to get funding if it was male pitching to a male or male pitching to a female. because I think, you know, and there's a lot of data that supports this, that there is unconscious bias, which kicks in uh, for female teams who present. And again, this has been in the news an awful lot recently, you know, can, can you be pregnant and fundraising? Or you just get asked slightly different questions, you know, like founders somehow, was, you know, investors somehow want to know what, what's the family set up like? <laughs> or, which, you know, if it was a male, that would just, that, that question would never get asked. And so... I think at least, as I said, there's awareness out. And a lot of VCs are really looking at what are the questions they ask, where are they looking for deal flow, and how are they evaluating these opportunities just to make sure that they're eliminating unconscious bias. And, and they're really sharing best practices amongst the VCs as well. Yeah, so I think that's a that's sort of long-winded answer to say there's a long way to go, but I, I definitely think 
that there's a lot of people championing this now. And so hopefully slowly the changes, positive changes, will really start to tickle through. Yeah, I, I, I think given where the venture capital is starting from, there's no way it can change overnight because it, if nothing else, it takes time for people to build expertise. Even if you start bringing people at junior level, it's going to take time for these these to sort of work up to, as you say, being the decision makers. But I do get the sense that people are taking it seriously now. And ESG is obviously a big fashion generally. And I think diversity rightly gets a focus, partially because it's easily measurable. And you know, what gets measured gets managed. So hopefully that will, will, will see things get, getting better going forward. Fingers crossed on yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I really hope to see more women become at peace, become angels and become founders. And, and there's a role that hopefully the government can also do to support that in terms of you know, childcare, especially if you're a founder. You know, sometimes you know, it almost doesn't make sense to work and and it's a risky journey you go on. And so, yeah, I think I think there's probably a lot more that can be done, but I think especially within the world of VCs, as you said, the awareness is there. Yeah, hopefully we will start to see bigger impacts of, of, these, cha- of these small sort of changes taking place. So one criticism I've heard of sometimes of angels is that they're still focused on the tax release. When you're looking at companies, I mean, if you're focused on tech, maybe this is academic, are you sort of saying, I need a company that can get me EIS or SEIS relief? Or are you sort of saying, I just want a good company, and if it gets me the relief, then great? Yeah, I would be the latter. So if a company wasn't incorporated in the UK or wasn't eligible for SEIS or EIS relief, I would still 100% look at the deck, have a, you know, have a call with the founders and still evaluate it with a really serious view of investing regardless. However, if they do have SEIS, that would be the cherry on the top for me because it obviously is such a wonderful incentive to de-risk your investments. You'd sort of be crazy not to take that offer if it was on the table, but it doesn't stop me from from looking at any opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I've heard stories about founders being really frustrated about if they're not eligible for for the relief and and going around and getting funding is really hard for them sometimes. And I can see, you know, if you're if you're starting out in terms of angel investing, you know, SIS and EIS is almost so good that you can, and the the volume of startups is also quite high. So you probably could be in a position where you say, look, you know, I would be crazy to invest in any company that doesn't have SIS or EIS. And and if you don't take that box, you know, unfortunately, there's probably going to be many companies you do where I can invest. And so it all depends, I suppose, a little bit on your risk profile. And and if you can't afford to lose 100% of the capital that you're investing in, you know, if you have those restraints, it's probably still better that you're investing than not because you're still an angel investor, you're still contributing, you're still helping these companies grow and hopefully succeed. So, yeah, so if that is your limitation, I, I fully appreciate why some angels probably stick to that. However, hopefully over time, I'd like to think that they've built up their confidence and hopefully perhaps even had some liquidity, you know, you know, even if they could um, exit one or two of the early angels investments to then give them sort of the, the capital and the resources to then start looking at companies who perhaps don't have EIS. Uh-huh. Yeah, because presumably there's a lot of, non-eligible companies that are, I mean I mean the seven-year rule in particular I think is something I f- find a little bit annoying I know it frustrates a lot of people if a company's 10 years old it could still be a really really good company but it wouldn't be eligible yeah yeah exactly 
thinking about diversification in your portfolio, you, t- you talked about you looking to spread out from uh, your your perhaps earlier focus on techno on uh, cybersecurity. How do you think about the spread of companies in your portfolio versus your ability to support them? I mean, clearly, if if you've got a hundred companies, supporting all those is going to be really hard. Yeah, it's going to be extremely hard. And I think that's why you need to be very honest about what is the value add that, that you have to any of these investments. And I think from a founder's standpoint, they also need to take the value add with a pinch of salt. I think you can have all the best intentions in the world. However, you really need to manage those expectations. You know, you're not part of the team. Mm-hmm. You, you know, perhaps you have your own day job as we you know in the evenings and weekends, you're trying to help and make introductions and, and provide that support. So I suppose you have to take every example sort of case by case. Um, however, the way I manage that is in the early stages, I try and be as helpful as I can. And I would very much let that be led by the founders. So, you know, is it helpful for them to speak to me once a month, to send me an update, to have me review documents on an ad hoc basis? When I say documents, it's probably most likely to be, you know, pitch decks. Or the other way I like to help is to say to all the companies I've invested in, you know, look look through my LinkedIn contacts. If there's anyone that I'm connected to that you'd like an introduction to, please let me know and I'll facilitate that. And I also think if you're a founder, there are some very great ways that you can try and get that extra support and, and I guess, access from your angel investors. But it's also about how the founders go about managing that. And so I've, I've worked with founders who are excellent in keeping the shareholders in the loop and asking for help in a very practical manner. And, and that might even be, I see on LinkedIn, you're connected to XYZ. And then can I send you an introduction email for you to simply forward on? And if it takes me all of 30 seconds to just say, you know, hi, Bob, please meet XYZ, you know, job done. Um, and so it's extremely efficient. And so the more specific I think the founders can be in terms of the help they, they require the better and the more likely you are as an angel investor to, to act upon that and so that's probably the way that I like to help the portfolio best and then coming back to your earlier point you know yeah if you have got a big portfolio there's only so much of your time that you can spread across multiple different companies but I think it's also important in that example to note that companies often need your support and being a bit more hands-on at very early stages perhaps having just closed their their pre-seed round or their seed round and as they if you've been helpful in that that sort of phase of their development and then they've gone on to a series a you know then you're almost handing over the reins to the next set of investors they are probably more they're better equipped at helping that company for the next stage so i almost sort of see this in life cycles there's, there's probably a period of the sort of three six twelve months when you are going to be that port of call and actually after that period as long as they're scaling and they're growing well you know they're probably the first person they're going to call and they need help probably isn't going to be one of their really early age investors anymore but I think it's still, for me, it's still really important to always be championing them, you know, always dropping them into conversations when you, you know, if you're writing, I, I'm not very big on social media, but a lot of angel investors are, you know, always, always mentioning their companies. Um, if you can make any introductions to, to customers, even better. And 
more often than not, startups now need to go through multiple funding rounds. So, so always be willing to, to you know, drop in the name and their, their success and their, their traction to potential follow-on investors because I think it's so important for them to have the company on their radar, even if they're not yet at the point where they're looking to invest, because it's just a case of building relationships and um, sort of knowing the right people. So, that, so yeah, that's a really long-winded answer to sort of how I try and support um, the companies. And as I said earlier, the other the thing I hear time and time again from founders is actually the best support you can give is just to be quick and efficient in terms of sort of signing documentation or, or doing follow-on rounds. You know, a quick yes, a quick no, so they know where they stand and then they can get on with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah, because it, it would be very easy to say yes if you've got you made a hundred investments over ten years, you're actually only making ten investments a year, and maybe that means there's only. 10 or 20 companies in your portfolio that are actually interested in support at your level. It does make it a lot more manageable. You also mentioned about the time commitment there, and and I know you've got a kind of full-time job. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. Um, it would be very easy for angel investing to become a full-time job. And I think I see a lot of people coming to this, when I retired, I'll do a bit of angel investing. How do you see sort of juggling angel investing with your professional commitments? Yes, it's a great question. So I suppose the point that you made about, you know, I'll get to angel investing when I've retired. And it can be, you know, what a wonderful hobby to have you know, rather than doing the golf course or fishing or whatever it may be, or, or you perhaps you combine all of them. But there's definitely a trend I see at the moment happening where startups like to raise money from founders or operators or people who are actively sort of involved in the, in the in the community, in the network, in the sectors that they're working in. So I think it gives you a competitive edge if you are sort of an operator. So if you've retired, the plus side is you've probably got more time on your hands to help. But in time, your network is probably going to fade somewhat. Um, and if, if the value add of that investor is being able to make introductions to potential, no, you know, customers is obviously what what all companies are after. But as I said, investors, you know, the more relevant your live network is, I think the more appealing you are as an angel investor. So I think that's maybe something just to, to, to bear in mind. And some of the best companies now, I say the best, but, you know, the, the hottest deals, they have a choice who they can take money from. And in, in some cases, you know, you have to sell yourself to the company. It's more than just your money. And what value do you bring to the table? And so, yeah, being an operator definitely sort of puts you um, puts you up there and potentially even just writing a smaller check because you've got that, that value add beyond the money. Yeah, and then the way I juggle it is obviously just always have to make sure there's no um, conflict within Octopus, Octopus Ventures Invest um, Series A. And obviously, I, my angel investments are pre-seed. So there's definitely a very big sort of sector or stage, sorry, stage uh, differentiator there. And and then again, as I said, it comes down to being very realistic with the founders as to what help you can provide. But I suppose the, the real plus side for me is that my day job is sort of helping founders you know i've been doing that for over a decade now so it comes sort of second second nature to me i suppose in terms of where can you be helpful what are the great resources even if it's sending them and i like to do this on whatsapp you know TechCrunch is looking for a speaker for the next event or this event is coming up or there's a grant available here you know just through your network you hear of, of these different sort of 
incentives or things that might be of interest. So, you know, I just really quickly share them with the founders, like, hey, you might not have seen this, might be of interest. And it's so so easy for them to ignore if it's not, or if it is, it's like brilliant. Or like quite often if a new VC has popped up that's in their sector, I might just ping them and um, just to, you know, to make them aware. So yeah, just you know, really regular sort of comms channel going on with the founder and trying to be helpful as and as and when. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds excellent. So if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, yeah, in veins investing, that sounds really good. I fancy a bit of that or fancy trying that. What would you suggest they do? Oh, good. So if you were just starting out, well, if you're listening to this and you're keen to start angel investing, that's amazing. I really do try and champion more people uh, to, to, to have a go at this. But I suppose, yeah, there's some really important things to then be aware of. The first the you know the absolute most crucial one is you have to be willing to lose that money so i think you have to give yourself a pot which is doesn't influence your life one way or the other if you do say that that might sound crazy so you know maybe that's that's 10k you could start off with that um or you know that might be 20k but you need to be comfortable with thinking that you would never see that money again. I think that's the most important thing to be aware of when you start out. Number two is it whilst you can um, put all the knowledge and you know you can spend so much time evaluating a sector or a team or the product or whatever it may be, there is an element of luck to angel investing. You know, so much can go wrong that is outside of your control or the founder's control. And so if you want, if you're serious about angel investing, my recommendation would always be try and build up a portfolio. So you want to spread the risk amongst, you know, and what is the magic number here? So I would say, you, know, <laughs> you knew what was going to ask, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, if I was put on the spot, I'd say somewhere between, God, a minimum of five, five to twenty would be a really good range to get you started. So, so that means you know, coming back to the original point if you do have 10k split that up split that up into four sort of two and a half k checks um, and then find four great companies potentially in different sectors or building a different product to back and a that will give you the great experience of the the different quality of the, the, the teams the challenges that they might face it might be you know b2b b2c direct to consumer you know there's a number of just sort of different business models that you could um explore so yeah, so point one is um, having the funds that you're happy to, to never see again. B, make sure you build a portfolio designed to, to make more than one investment. And then C is the network. So so go along to all these pitch pitch events. Um, so many of these are online now. You can find, depending on sort of what your passions are, your interests are, there's, there's probably an accelerator for it. So do a bit of desk research. Um, start, start reading some of the tech articles of of uh, sifted and TechCrunch, just get, get become really familiar with sort of startups and and so and then start reviewing you know start putting the word out there a little bit that, that you're keen to, to invest and then very quickly you'll start receiving decks and and my final bit of advice would be just don't rush into it you know make sure that you've seen at least 10 decks if not, perhaps, you know, double that and that you've spoken to at least 10 different companies and um, get get comfortable with asking these questions and 
surround yourself with other angel investors that you can learn from them. Um, and the, the really great thing about the sector is that everyone is so often willing to share, willing to share their notes, make introductions. Um, yeah, and so just learn from others, I would say, and, and have fun along the way. Yeah, one of the things that really impresses me about our segment of the industry is that it's more cooperative than competitive, I think, a lot of the time. It would be very easy for people to say, oh, I want this deal and you can't get it. But actually, it's not like that at all. No, exactly. And I think that, I think that's also due to the fact that angels like to build up a portfolio. So they know they're going to co-invest alongside other angels. And so there is this absolutely like this gift to get mentality, right? You know, I'll share this deal with you, I've got your input, you know, and then you might come across a deal that I'm excited in. And so, as you said, it's very collaborative. And I think that's that's a great way for it to be. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'm going to throw this at you and we'll see what your thoughts are. So what was the most recent investment you made and why do you make it? Um, a company called Ecora. They are a decentralized ledger technology company for central bank digital currency. <laughs> so what I said, I wasn't what does that mean? <laughs> Exactly. So I said, you know, I don't always understand the tech. That's definitely one example where, my goodness, I definitely do not understand the tech. However, the founder um, is a is a serial entrepreneur. Um, I I've known him for five years. He was an entrepreneur in residence at Cylon. So it was a case where you know you 100% back founder, and mm -hmm. and it almost didn't really matter what it was that he was building. <laughs> Okay, so backing the man over the front. So I think you've come to talk to about this before, but the classic VAC triumvirate of, of market products and management, we all know they're all important, but which one do you think is the most important? I would always put the, the team. Mm -hmm. Top. Yeah, the management. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, a time I failed. I mean, that's really, really great question and a hard one to answer. I'd probably say... Not necessarily a failure, but a learning, if, if that's uh -huh. not a complete cop-out. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone tries cops out this question. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I bet, I bet. Um, but, you know, a failure could be potentially a deal that you didn't get in. I've, I've definitely had some some companies not have a successful exit, but, but I don't see that as a failure. You know, I think that's part of the journey, and you have to go into this with open eyes, and, and you know, some of them will fail. And so, so in my opinion, that's not that's not a failure in itself. Um, and so the lesson I would say that I've learned some way is when to sell out as an angel. So if you are fortunate enough that you take the company that then goes on to raise series A, series B, potentially even series C, sometimes there will be an opportunity for the earlier angel investors in the company to sell their shares when a larger investor is coming on board. And so that's good for you know all sorts of reasons give you liquidity to then go in and hopefully reinvest in a whole bunch of other companies or but it's a very tricky um, position to be in do you stay in and, and so that's yeah that's a million dollar question and I suppose the, the sort of failure slash learning that I've I've gone through in that process is knowing what is my what is my strategy going to be around this and so I um I sought a lot of counsel and my rule of thumb is sell down sort of between 10 to 20 percent at any given opportunity and that's something that i've definitely had to learn along the way you know what is what is best practice what is the risk of not selling what is the risk of, of selling out mm -hmm. yeah I've, I've i've heard people who've put rules like 
if I get a, a multiple of at least, I don't know, four or five or something, then they'll take their initial capital off the table. Yeah. And, yeah. and so they got, in a essence, a return of capital guaranteed and they'll, they'll run the rest and things like that. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's good, even just for yourselves, to, to have some structure in place where you say, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And then to try and be quite disciplined with that in every scenario. And uh, yeah, and, and it might be the right decision in some, and it might be the wrong decision in others. And again, I, you know, that, that's part of, I suppose, the risk that you're taking. But at least when you get to that side, you know, it's a, it's a positive risk. Uh, and so, as I said, it's a nice scenario to be in. And, and then it's just how best to manage that. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, it's tricky because I know there's one or two VC, American VCs have this philosophy of never sell a share. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and there's a lot of different sort of approaches to this. And that's what I found, I suppose, challenging is to try and find one that I felt comfortable with. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's what's works for you, what's works in some sense, your risk profile and whether you could tolerate waking up in two years time and finding you had an opportunity to exit and you didn't take anything and, and the company's gone to zero which has happened yeah exactly or, or vice versa you know you take your money out as you say it's at four eggs and and it goes up to you know let's say 40x you know, <laughs> and, and, you know like you're kicking yourself back so as you said and, and that's why i've had a number of conversations with a lot of people who've been in this in this situation you know far more frequently than myself so to try to map out you know what is best practice and as you say it's going to be so individual but i think it is worth sort of educating yourself really in terms of yeah, of the risk of, of both sides, what can go wrong. So, so yeah, so it's always, it always comes down to making educated risks, taking educated risks, I suppose. But no, I, I, I think your idea of having thinking about in advance and some sort of rule in place for these sort of circumstances, because it probably will happen. And and my my understanding is secondary transactions, that's actually becoming more common. I don't know what you're seeing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think... There's a lot of money in the market at the moment. A lot of companies are getting invested. It's a nice way to to, to offer those early angel investors sort of, you know, yeah, they get an upside for taking risk early. It enables them to go out and hopefully reinvest that money into, you know, you know, a, a, a larger portfolio of companies. So it, I think it's becoming more common now, actually, to, to at least offer those early, early investors the opportunity to exit. Mm-hmm. And, and from your perspective, are you t- saying to this, you, when you get this money back, are you are you looking to recycle that? I mean, you're, you're, it's not like you're an old person needing your pension yet. So, well, I suppose I suppose if you're being really sensible, a bit of both. So, I would love to. Um, so, first of all, yeah, I I really enjoy angel investing, and I I've only really sort of just got started with it, and so it's certainly something that I want to continue doing um, and to have the funds to do so, that's exactly what I mean. Like you need to sort of take some money off the table from, from one investment and then my strategy would be exactly what I recommended, sort of split it up and try and write as many smaller check sizes and, and sort of go again. Yes, and so however, you know, I still have a mortgage and I still have other sort of financial um, commitments. So yeah, I would have put 100% back in, but, but definitely really proportion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the sort of industry which work in is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? Yes, good point. What I'd like to change about it, maybe um, transparency. I think it can be really tough for founders if they don't have that sort of 
network that they can very easily tap into you know where do they start who do they go and talk to and so um i think it'd be great for especially for angels it's very hard for startups to identify you know who are the angels in that sector and again for if for angels it's probably quite hard to access you know what are the deals that that i like and so i don't really have a solution for it but i still feel like that's sometimes a, a challenging um part of, of the matchmaking process and then transparency in terms of funds you know who who's investing what stage what what size um just to help founders navigate that investment journey because for if you're a startup you know it can take three to six months to 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 go on you know spend your life sort of doing pitch meetings and and then if you're wasting your time almost pitching to the wrong people then that can be extremely frustrating as well and so maybe when i say transparency that's perhaps the wrong word it's just um it can just be a bit of a minefield i think in terms of you know who do you go to and when and um as i said i don't have any solution for that but i i definitely think that that's an area that can be improved but and but then that said the the really positive thing that we have seen and um, that's happened as a consequence of COVID is that it no longer really matters as to where you are. So you can be a startup in Romania and you can easily get funded in London or vice versa or you know it doesn't location hopefully is less of a barrier now. So hopefully that does mean that VC money and angel money just become more accessible. I, I've heard mixed perspectives on that because I've seen one or two people suggesting that they're still cautious because ultimately they still if they want to go to board meetings they still want to be able to interact with the, te- the team and they feel like looking at someone over zoom is not the same as sitting across the table and looking in the white of their eyes do you think people are are really ready to go remote in that way I suppose I feel very comfortable with it, so maybe I'm just assuming others are too. But that's, of course, not always the case. I don't see any reason why you have to have met the team in person. I think, I think that's, that's great if you can. That said, I've not, I've not done any deal where I haven't met the founder in person yet. So, yeah, so probably... <laughs> I think it wouldn't stop me. Um, and, and that said, I still don't think it would stop me. I've, I've come very close to doing one or two angel uh, deals having never met the founders. And it, and it had more to do with sort of the, the product that, that, that sort of stopped me from investing rather than the fact that I hadn't met the team. And I think so much of the value you can add now if you're just making quick email introductions rather than sort of sitting you know, side by side or joining a quarterly board meeting. And, and so I think you're you're just as able to support those companies almost no matter where they are. Of course, there's obviously um, time zone restrictions. But within Europe, yeah, hopefully location shouldn't be too much of a barrier anymore. Uh-huh. Well, maybe we'll see more international things appearing then. So lockdown's been fantastic for my reading. I'm up to uh, all, getting on for 30 books already this year. So a- any books you'd like to recommend? Oh, a book that I really enjoyed reading is called Delivering Happiness. I don't know if you've already read that one. Sorry, say it's, that again. Uh, it's Delivering Happiness. Ah, I don't, I don't know that one at ah, all. Okay, good, good. So it's um, it's a shoe startup called Zappos that was started in the ah, in the yes, them I know. And it, yeah, and it's uh, and it ended up uh, being acquired by Amazon. But it's a wonderful um story, just about some the path that they took in terms of how they built up the company, what were the values, what were the 
what's the culture like? And, and then the founder goes on to actually um, becoming a really active investor himself. And yeah, that was just a fascinating book. And from so many different angles, if you're angel investing or you're a professional investor or you're a startup, um, I think it's almost impossible to not read that book and, and uh, have a few great takeaways from it. No, I'll, I'll definitely look that up because I think there's very few good books about startups that have actually, where you got the story of a company and, and Zaphos has, has this really unique culture as well, which I think would be extra interesting. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't, it wasn't an easy journey, so I think that also makes it really compelling reading. The other one, which, of course, is a must-read, is Bad Blood. Ah, <laughs> the, the Theranos one. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a thriller. You're like, oh, my goodness, how is this, like, real life? Yeah, it, it's kind of creepy about the way that they... The way, the way they get private detectives involved and, and intimidate staff or former staff. Yeah, and I think it's been turned into a movie, actually. But yeah, it's a, a fantastic book. It wouldn't surprise me. I, 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 I Somehow I picture Jennifer Lawrence in the leading role for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. But you might be right. I don't know who it is. <laughs> um, I think there's a passing resemblance when she's got her long, long hair. What do you wish you knew when you started events investing that you know now? Perhaps like, the barriers to entry are lower than what you expect. Now, I always had this perception that an angel investor had to be someone who's like tremendously wealthy, an expert probably in every single sector that they were investing in. And, and that's just quite simply not the case. And so I think, you know, regardless of sort of your profile, your experience, you know, everyone has something to offer uh, and it can be extremely fun. And so I think you can start small and it's a great way to build up, you know, your network, get passionate about the latest technologies that are that are being built. And so yeah, it's a really it's a, a great way to yeah, great you know, if you're passionate about technology and people, um I think just knowing that you can get involved in that and and you don't need to have, you know, many millions in the bank account, that that you can, that you know, this is a role that you could go down and, and pursue and have a lot of fun with it. And I suppose I wish that I wish that I'd known that sooner because I probably would have started a bit sooner. <laughs> well, there's a resounding endorsement. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, how should they get in touch? Yeah, look me up on LinkedIn, Kirsten Connell, um, or Twitter. My handle name is Kirst, K-I-R-S-T. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah, I'd be happy to chat to anyone. So yeah, if, if someone's interested in starting to, to angel invest, always happy to chat, to recommend some good, uh, some good you know, networks that they can tap into. And likewise, you know, if you're a founder looking for an angel investor, please do get in touch. Excellent. Well, that's been really interesting. Thank you very much for coming on today, Kirsten. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.